Last week, as we continued studying through the book of Mark, and particularly Mark chapter 13, we used a little picture to try to explain how the coming of Jesus could be near today, just like it was 2,000 years ago. Because remember, we studied in, in Scripture the idea that the early Christians, the Christians who heard Jesus speak these words for the first time in Mark 13, they believed Jesus was right at the door. His coming was near. And you may recall the picture we used is of you going down Highway 94 East as if you were to pass over into that neighboring state on the other side, whose name I hesitate to even use. I got to tell you, Andrew came up to me after service and he said, you realize that when you use that picture, you were using the picture of, of Wisconsin as being like the eternal rest with Jesus. And I said, yeah, I thought about that. And it's unfortunate. No, that was not the picture of the, of the point, okay? Uh, we don't want to read into it too deeply. Um, but the picture is that on 94, you, instead of crossing over the bridge into Wisconsin, you get off on Highway 95. And you go parallel to the river through Bay, Bayport, and then you snake through Stillwater, and then you snake through Marine on St. Croix, and then you get up to Taylor's Falls. You've been near the river the entire time, but you haven't crossed over. And for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been right near the river, if you will. He's been at the door. He's been right, he's been close. We're in the last days. And yet, he has not crossed over, if you will. He has not come. Now, I hope that picture was helpful to you, but if you're thoughtful people, there might be a question that comes to mind for you. And that question might have been sharpened in your mind when you read together with us our Bible passage for today. Now, if you have your Bibles, I just encourage you to have them open to Mark chapter 13, whatever form you have them in, so we can be looking at God's word together. And notice what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. He said, the Son of Man doesn't even know the day of my actual coming. He said, take ye heed, listen up, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. You don't know when the Son of Man is coming. You say, okay, well, I can embrace that. That's fine. I'll keep on going. He says in verse 35, watch ye therefore. For ye know not, you don't know when the master of the house cometh at evening, that's in the evening, or at midnight, that's in the middle of the night, or at the cock crowing, that's in the very early morning, or in the morning. Now look at verse 36. Lest coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. Lest coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. You say, well, what's so difficult about that? Well, have you thought about the implications that Jesus is coming will be sudden? Suddenly, he will come. You say, well, what's, what are the implications of that? Well, think about what we've been learning by way of timeline as we've looked at Mark chapter 13. Remember the kind of thesis that we've been developing from Mark 13 is that Jesus is speaking both about things that would be partially fulfilled in the near term, with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Some of those things were fulfilled. 
And he's also talking about things that have not happened yet, but will happen in the future. Last week we said there are two generations in view here, perhaps. The view of this generation that saw a partial fulfillment of the signs that he was referring to, and then a future generation that would see all of the signs come to fruition and have those signs be capped off by his coming. You say, okay, I've understood that so far. What's so problematic about Jesus coming suddenly? Well, guess what, friends? If there is a tribulation in the future that you and I have not lived through yet, you and I have not experienced, and that tribulation needs to come first before Jesus comes. Remember, that's the timeline. There will be great days of tribulation like no one has ever experienced in human history. And then you're going to be seeing things like, what? The sun being darkened and the moon not giving her light and the stars of heaven falling and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. If that's future, and then, he says, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. You see the problem? How can Jesus be coming suddenly? Or, or we say it this way, how could he be coming unexpectedly for us? You see, if you were to go to our church website today, you would be able to find the conclusion that we draw in our statement of faith that says that we believe in the personal and premillennial and imminent coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we believe. We believe in an imminent coming, a sudden coming, an unexpected coming. You say, well, Pastor Peter, how can you believe that? If you believe that there's a period of tribulation that we, the world, is going to see before Jesus comes, that means if those who have say there will be at least a seven-year period of the greatest tribulation that the world has ever seen, we can say that the coming of Jesus Christ is unexpected because we got to get through that first. You see the problem? You see the issue? Well, how are we going to deal with this idea of the sudden coming of Jesus Christ in light of the timeline that we've been reading in Mark 13? That's the question I want to answer this morning or at least give you some avenues to think about it. And what I'm going to call the message today is simply this, a sudden coming. Because, friends, I believe with all my heart that the coming of Jesus is going to be sudden. I believe it's going to be unexpected. And I believe that you would say and I would say that it is imminent. It is an imminent coming. Now, how are we going to piece that together with what we have learned so far from Mark 13? What we're going to talk about today is what theologians and other Bible teachers call the rapture. Now, I don't think that that word comes as a surprise to any of you. You probably almost certainly have heard the word rapture. Now, what's interesting is that the rapture, that word does not appear once in our Bibles. If you were to go search through your concordance diligently, you wouldn't find rapture anywhere in it. The idea of the word rapture is because that word comes from a Latin word that was used in the Latin translation of our Bible. That's where we get the word rapture from. It's translated from the Latin, and that Latin was used, that word was used in, in the Bible. Well, in which 
place was it used? It was used in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. And we'll look at that passage just, in just a little bit. That word in the Greek is harpazo. Harpazo. The idea of harpazo means being snatched away. Being caught away. Like if you were to snatch something and pull it and take it with you. That's the idea of harpazo, and that's the idea of rapture. When we refer into the biblical idea of a rapture, we mean being caught away, being snatched away. What I want to do tonight on this subject that has been the heart of a much biblical controversy, I want to talk about the rapture, and I want to talk about whether this doctrine of the rapture is biblical, and how we should think of it in light of the coming of Jesus Christ being a sudden coming. Here's the first question we're going to try to answer about the rapture today. What is it? What is the rapture? Well, we talked about it just briefly. It is a snatching away or a catching away. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at several passages in our Bible. We're going to step away from Mark chapter 13, and we're going to look at some passages in our Bible to try to understand what the description biblically of this event is. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to start by looking at the most significant biblical description of this event that has been called the rapture, but perhaps you could just call it the harpazo in Greek, the snatching away. Now, what's going on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? 1 Thessalonians deals with a church that had come to Jesus Christ. They had been saved. They had accepted the good news about who Jesus was. And now they were experiencing all kinds of difficulty and all kinds of persecution and all kinds of trouble. And if you'll notice with me, in verse 13 of chapter 4, they have a concern about the coming of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says to them. He said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now you need to be clear about something. He's not talking about those who are taking a nap. He's talking about those who have died. That's what he means when he uses the term asleep. It's a gentle way to speak of someone who has died. Do you know how we do that today? Our euphemistic way of talking about death? We say, he, what? He passed away. That's gentler, isn't it, than saying, he died. He croaked. He gave up the ghost. You know, what do we say? He, he passed away. And that's what Paul's doing here. He, he, they fell asleep. Why? Because what does the Christian doctrine of resurrection teach us? In a sense... They are really only asleep. No, not their soul. The soul, the doctrine of soul sleep is not a biblical doctrine. What is it? It's in a sense their bodies are. They will be brought to a new resurrected body one day. So he uses this idea of, of being asleep. And the people in, in Thessalonica were concerned. And they were in danger of losing hope about these people who had fallen asleep. Why? Because notice what he says in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep, which are dead, in Jesus will God bring with him. The picture seems to be Paul saying, don't be concerned about those people who have died. 
when Jesus comes, those who are dead are going to come with him. Now, it seemed to me that the people in Thessalonica were concerned that those who had died would miss the coming of Christ, that they would just keep on sleeping. They would miss this dramatic event that Paul clearly had told them of, of the coming of Christ. And Paul's telling them, no, if those who are dead in Jesus, God was going to bring them with Jesus when he comes. He's going to bring them. Now let that be a comfort to all of you who have lost loved ones, who trusted in Jesus, and who gave him their life. God is not going to leave them in the dust of the ground. God will bring with Jesus those who sleep. And look at what Paul says in verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. So this is a direct revelation from God. That we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. You say, I don't understand. You need to understand what that word prevent is. It has the idea of going before them of budging in line, of going first. So he's saying, what he's saying is, those who are dead in Jesus aren't going to have to wait for you. You're not going to go first. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Notice what he says. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise when? First. Are they going to miss the coming of Christ? Are they going to miss this dramatic event when we're going to see Jesus face to face? They're not going to miss it. In fact, they're going first. That's what Paul's saying, just very, very simply. Now notice what he says next. Then we which are alive and remain shall be harpazo. Shall be raptured. What will we be? That's the word. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we be ever with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort everyone. Those that have died, they're going to see Jesus' return. And we're going to see it too. And we're going to be harpazo. We're going to be raptured together in the clouds. So let me just make this one observation. In my view, there is absolutely no dispute that the rapture is biblical. Or could I say it this way? The harpazo? Whatever way you want to, whatever term you want to call it. Paul clearly says that Christians will be caught up with Jesus in the clouds. We will have our feet, if you will, swept off the ground. We will meet him up there in the clouds. Are we, are we settled there? Do we feel comfortable saying that biblically? That's what Paul says right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So the picture of the rapture is that Jesus is going to come down to the clouds, and we are going to go where? Up to the clouds. So we are going to meet the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 17. We shall be caught up together with them, those who are dead in Christ, into the clouds... To meet the Lord in the air. So we will meet him up there, not down here. And then what does he say? And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Okay, so what are the major components of this biblical rapture? 
Jesus is going to come down to the clouds. We're going to go up to the clouds. We're going to meet him, and we're going to be with him forever from that point forward. We are going to be with him forever. Okay, so what is the rapture? That's the rapture, the harpazo, the snatching away, the catching up into the air to meet the Lord in the air. But, you know, friends, that's not really the main debate. The main debate is the second point. When is that going to happen? Okay, first question. What is the rapture? That's the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When is the rapture going to happen? Now, if we actually ignore the chapter divide in chapter 5, again, chapter divides are not inspired. Paul just wrote this as one straight letter. If you just pass over this, you'll get another sense, I think, of when this idea is. Notice verse 1 of chapter 5. But, so he's connecting this to what he's just said, but of the times and the seasons, brethren. He's talking about the when. But of the when, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. As a thief in the night. Now, what he's saying here is that the day of the Lord He's using this picture of an Old Testament idea for the day or for the season when God is going to show up and bring his judgment. He's going to show up dramatically and have his way. The day of the Lord, you might say, is a kind of period of time in history when God is going to dramatically bring all things to their final conclusion. So he says, you know, brothers, that that day when God's going to bring everything to its final conclusion very rapidly, how's it going to come? It's going to come like a thief in the night. Now, I don't know if you've ever had your home broken into, but I think you can probably come into the idea. The picture that Paul is using of a thief in the night, isn't it fundamentally about being unexpected? Isn't that the main idea? You don't know when a thief is going to bring, break into your house. And if you did, you'd be ready for him. You'd be there stopping him. You'd be making sure he couldn't. No, the idea of the thief in the night is that he's coming unexpectedly. Now keep on going. Notice when he says in verse 3, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Do you see that picture? A woman's labor pains. When do they come on? They come on unexpectedly. They come on suddenly. Maybe when she's not even expecting it. Whoa, I'm in labor, right? That's the idea. It's sudden, it's unexpected. But he says in verse 4, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day, that unexpected sudden day, should overtake you as a thief. And he says in verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Okay, so the first thing that we should see from context here about the rapture is that it's going to come unexpectedly or that it's going to come suddenly. It's going to be, wow, there it is. Okay, let me just talk to you about a couple ideas in across church history and across our Christian community today about what this means and about what the rapture means. There are many that hold the view that the rapture of Jesus isn't going to come, this second coming, isn't going to come until 
after the tribulation period that we read about in Mark 13, about the most destructive period of human history up until this day, up until the time of this tribulation. And that Jesus is going to come and call his saints up to the clouds to be with him, and then they're all going to come down to the earth, and Jesus is going to rule and bring judgment to the whole world. In other words, there are many that hold the view that 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about a rapture. It is talking about being caught up together with the Lord in the clouds. But it's only one event with the coming of Christ. We're going to go meet him up in the air. We're going to welcome him in the air. And we're going to come back down to the earth with him. And he is going to exercise his judgment and his rule. In fact, um, John Piper here in Minneapolis, obviously a well-known preacher and teacher, believes in this position. His view is that this picture of us going up into the air and meeting him is exactly that. Like going out of a city to welcome the dignitary who's coming in, the king is coming in, you go out of the city to meet him, and then you go back into the city. You come, we're going to come back down to earth, and Jesus is going to reign. Now, I have just again a question about that. The challenge with that view is that Jesus has just said, told us, he's coming suddenly. And Paul has said that day is going to come like a thief in the night, when you're not expecting it. In fact, not only that, notice what he said. He said in verse 3, he says, For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Do you know what's going to be happening before the coming, coming of Jesus? People are going to be saying, Oh, isn't the peace and safety great that we're all experiencing? Aren't we having such a great time here down on earth? And then, bam, he says, the destruction and the judgment of God is going to come upon them suddenly. You say, well, what's the concern about that? Well, friends, go back to Mark chapter 13 in your minds. Do you remember the days in which the judgment of God is coming on the world in this great tribulation? Those days he described as being the greatest trouble that would ever fall upon mankind. He described those days as being the sun dar being darkened, the moon not giving her light, the stars of heaven falling, perhaps speaking literally of these incredible events in the heavens. Do you think when those events are happening, people are going to be kicking back in their easy chairs and saying, wow, peace and safety. Look at how great life is on earth right now. We're, we're really living the dream, aren't we? To my view, it seems hard to square how that coming of Jesus Christ could be at a time when everyone's saying peace and safety, when in Mark 13, what's going to immediately precede Jesus' coming is the greatest catastrophes the world has ever seen to this point. You think about it. You think about it. Clearly, very, very gifted and godly men have taken a different view. To me, that is a challenge with that view. Well, what is another view? There are more views than this, but I'll just present two of the major views. The other view is that Jesus will come for his church before that tribulation, before that perhaps seven-year period when the greatest catastrophes that the world has ever seen will befall this world. And in that view, what is called the pre-tribulational rapture. If you ever hear that phrase, that's what it means. The pre, the before-tribulational rapture is that 1 Corinthians 4 is talking about a sudden, unexpected event 
when we are going to be snatched away, when we are going to be caught away to meet the Lord in the air. And at that point, the day of the Lord will be upon us. The tribulation, the judgment of God, the wrath of God being poured out against those who have rebelled against him, against this broken and rebellious world, that that will come at that point. We are snatched out. The judgments uh, from Revelation 6 through Revelation 19 begin, and we go to heaven to be with Jesus for us, that seven-year period. And then at that point, Jesus comes down with us, and we re-enter the world together. We, he, the second coming described in Mark 13 of Jesus coming down to earth then takes place. Now, understand what this idea is saying. It's not saying that there are two second comings. We need to understand that. It's not saying that there's a second coming in the rapture and then seven years later there's a second coming when Jesus comes back. It actually is saying there is one second coming but in two parts. It's like Jesus comes to gather us as he comes to judge the world and to bring out the finality of all things. That's what the idea is. Are we talking about one second coming in which we are raptured up to meet him in the clouds and then we come back down with him immediately? Or are we talking about he comes to snatch us away and then there is an intervening period of perhaps several years before we all come down together with him at his second coming in Mark chapter, as we just saw in Mark chapter 13? Well, how would we think about that? Let me tell you just very straightforwardly. The Bible doesn't tell us in a very explicit or express way. You are drawing, if you're going to reach a conclusion on this subject, you're going to be drawing it from clues. You're going to be trying to piece certain uh, ideas biblically together and understand them. Let me just give a couple of clues that are helpful to me as I think about this subject of the rapture. When is this rapture going to occur in relationship to other events? Let's start, first of all, by turning to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This is a very famous passage in the Bible, and I don't know that you've ever thought of it in connection with the rapture, with Jesus coming to meet his church and to have this resurrection from the dead for his Christians, for his people. Jesus is speaking to his disciples right at the end of his earthly life. He's in the upper room. He's having the last supper with them. And he wants to teach them some very important truths about not only the Holy Spirit and not only their Christian lives, but about where he's going. And notice with me in verse 1. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Literally here, it's rooms or dwelling places. There's many places to live. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now notice what Jesus is saying here. I'm leaving. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. And I'm going to ascend up into heaven. And what does he call that heaven here? What does he call that? His what? His father's house. 
And he says, in my Father's house, there are many places to stay. In heaven, there are many dwelling places. What's he saying? For all of you guys. Right? In my Father's house, there are many places to stay. And he said, and, and if I go, which he did, I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, if you have any question in your mind, is it possible that Jesus would catch us up into the clouds and we would go with him to be in heaven while this tribulation period is happening on earth, this great destruction, this great judgment, this great catastrophe? Could that be? Well, friends, look at John 14. Jesus says, I'm going to receive you to myself. And where have I been? I've been preparing places for you in my Father's house. You're going to experience those dwelling places in my Father's house. Now again, if you believe that we will be here during the tribulation, or perhaps if you believe that we've already experienced the tribulation, and there's nothing, no tribulation further beyond what we've already experienced. If your view is that Jesus is going to come down, we're going to meet him up in the clouds, and then we're all going to come together. Friend, are we ever going to go up to his father's house? No. No, because what's going to happen after Jesus comes back down to earth? The Bible says that this heaven and earth is going to be destroyed, and there's going to be what? A new heaven and a new earth. Where are we going to be eternally, friends? We're not going to be up there floating around on clouds with angel wings and harps. That's not where we're going to be. Where is your everlasting life going to be with Jesus? It's going to be down here. It's going to be in a new heaven and a new earth. That is the redemptive plan of God. So if Jesus is saying in John 14, I'm going to receive you up to my Father's house where there are many places for you to stay, to my view, it's at least one clue. It's not necessarily decisive. It's at least one clue that Jesus may be thinking of taking us up with him and for an intervening period of time in which we would be in his Father's house. One more thing. Turn over to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, of course, is... Part of the message that Jesus has for his churches at a particular day and age and in a particular time. But they are a broader application to us as well. Because he says, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each message to each church is a message for all the churches, including our church today. Look what he says to the church which is at Philadelphia. In verse 7, he says, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now look at verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. That's literally the hour of testing. The hour of tribulation. Which shall come upon all the world 
to try them, to test them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou have. Hold on to what you have, that no man take thy crown. What does he mean when he says, I will keep you from the hour of testing, from the hour of trouble that's going to come on the whole world? Those who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, that we will be caught up with Jesus in the clouds, that we will go with him in, to be in heaven for a period of time while the tribulation is happening on the, world, on the earth, read that verse and they say, Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep you, Christians, my church, I'm going to keep you from this hour of trouble, notice that he says, that is going to come on all the world. Notice he didn't say, that's going to come on just Philadelphia that's going to come just on Asia Minor, that's just going to come on modern-day Turkey. He says that's going to come on the whole world. For many people, that is enough to convince them that he's talking about a future tribulation and that he's talking about keeping them by taking them out, by taking them out of the world before that tribulation happens. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9, you can just scribble this note down and look at it later. Paul says... For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are many today, I would say the majority of evangelical teachers and preachers today would say that God is not appointing his people, his church, to participate in the, trib in the great tribulation that is going to be an outpouring of God's wrath. Because God has not appointed us to wrath. He's not appointed us to eternal wrath. He's not appointed us to this kind of eschatological wrath, the, the end times wrath. Now, so when would we say from these passages the rapture might occur? Again, the rapture would occur unexpectedly, like a thief in the night, suddenly. It will be have a connection to the great days of trouble that are future, at least as we have been seeing so far. And it will involve the church being caught away to be with Jesus while the wrath of God is poured out on the world below. Now, I want to be fair, because as I've said, there are many very, very sincere and very scholarly and very honest believers who have a different view. And I will acknowledge that this view is one. Their view has significant merit, and there are clues that they can pluck from Scripture themselves. I'll just give you some of these by notes. In 2 Thessalonians 1, you see the coming of Jesus Christ described. And it's said in that passage that Jesus is coming to give rest to his saints who are being persecuted, and he is coming to give judgment to those who have been uh, uh, rebelling against him. And to those people who believe in a post-tribulational rapture that we will go through that period together, they say, there's no evidence from this text that the coming of Christ is going to come in two stages. One, we're going to go up with him, and then seven years later, he's going to come down in judgment. They treat it like it's one event coming at the same time. And there are other passages that you could get various clues from as well. Well, you say, Pastor Peter, what do you think? What's your view of this? Let me tell you what my view is. I look at all of these different clues and recognize that this is a challenging subject. There's a reason that so many Christian scholars disagree about it. But I will tell you, as I look at all the clues together, 
the ones that fit with the most Bible passages to me and the ones that do injury to the least amount, as I sit here today, is that there will be a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. If you were to ask me as I sit here today, what do you believe? I would say I believe that the next great event that is coming on the world is the sudden and imminent coming of Jesus Christ to snatch away or to catch away his church. Now, I want to be clear about something in that. What I want to be clear about is not just when that rapture will occur, but thirdly, how we should think about it. Because I'm going to be really candid with you. I cannot say dogmatically that my position is accurate. Because what am I doing? I'm looking at the same clues that everyone else is looking. You know, I was reminded of this this week. Um, for those of you who have ever come to Camp Shatek in recent years, you know that Annie and Julie Holmquist hide a little statue of the straight gate blue bus. It's like yay big. So this is just a little stone piece with the painting of the bus on it. And they hide it somewhere around the camp, and then we get clues. And usually someone finds it after three clues or maybe four clues. This year we needed five clues to find it. It was, it was really well done. And, 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 and yesterday morning, I, no one had found it yet. And I had found it last year. And so I said, you know what, I'm just going to go out. I'm just going to find it. I'm just going to go out and find it. Like, yeah, I, I got it. We got it. And you know, I was looking at those clues. And I was looking around at the camp, and some of you who were there, you remember, there was a clue about an oak tree, there was a clue about four blocks, there was, there was a, a clue about getting off the fence and joining the games, and we're looking around there, and I'm looking all around and I'm saying, okay, which one of these clues fits? Okay, well, there's, that looks kind of like an oak tree, I had to Google it. That kind of looks, uh, uh. Well, there's some blocks under an old building, and that's close to a fence. And I'm looking around. I'm literally getting down on the ground, like, looking under buildings. Like, is it under the block here? And you know there are other people that are using the same clues, and they're way off on the other side of the camp. They're way off completely away. And it's, can't you just imagine us sitting across and shouting at each other? Hey, she said there's an oak tree. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but she said there are four blocks. One, two, three, four. Yeah, did you count how many are over here? Yeah, but, but there's a fence over here. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a fence right here too. Do you see it? What am I saying? We're all looking at clues, and we're trying to piece the clues together, and we're standing in different camps, Oh, Jesus is coming before the tribulation. No, Jesus is coming after the tribulation. Jesus is coming is in one coming, but two events. No, what are you talking about? Jesus is one coming, one event, and that's it. And we're just shouting at each other across the camps. And sometimes, friends, we start yelling at each other so much, we start getting mad at each other. And we start shaking our fists at each other. And we start saying things like, frankly, I don't even know how you can be a Christian and hold that crazy of you. You know, frankly, how do you even put those pieces together? Are you mentally deficient? I mean, seriously, and, 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 and if you were to go read the, the literature that happens in the Christian church, it's literally people standing up and saying, you have to be completely ignorant or blind if you can't see it my way. Now, I'm going to be honest to you, friends, that's not me. Because I look at this and I try to put all the clues together using everything that I do every day as a lawyer to try to read passages and put them together. And you know what I say? I say, honestly, I'm kind of like 60-40. 
kind of like 5545. I think this is what it's saying. I think this is the best way to put the clues together. But am I going to stand and say, you other people, if you disagree with me, you're nuts? No, here's what I say. Here's what I think. Now you go study it too. And you go, and you go put these clues together. And you try to understand. Here's what I'm saying first. How should we think about the rapture? The first thing is this. Be diligent. Be diligent. God gave you these clues for a reason. Jesus told his disciples in Mark 13, he said, I foretold you all things. I foretold you everything. Do you know the Bible gives you exactly what God wants you to know about those future events, what we call eschatology, the study of end times? God gave you everything you need to know right here. So study it. There are some people that it said what their view of it is. Their view of the end times is called pan-eschatology. You know what pan-eschatology is? It'll all pan out someday. Uh, that's kind of funny, right? But let me say, be diligent. Be diligent. Look at the clues and try to understand it for yourself. But here's the second thing. Don't be discouraged. Do be diligent. But don't be discouraged. Why? Because it's this. God's purpose isn't to trick you. Did you know that? God didn't give you the Bible so that you'd be stumped and confused and utterly lost and say, you know what, I might as well just give the whole thing up anyway. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to challenge you to draw out your study and your greater foundation in your faith with him. And if you have any question about this, as if you're a parent, you know this. You know there's a difference between challenging your child and trying to confuse your child. Right? You know there's a difference when I'm playing baseball with Lars in the backyard, when I throw him some pitches that he might not be able to catch up to. Why? Because I'm challenging him. I'm seeing if he can, if he can grow, if he can get better and improve. I'm pushing him to challenge him. But I'm not pushing him to break his spirit. I'm not pushing him to say, you still are so terrible at this. You're never going to be anything. That's not what I'm doing as a dad. And it's the same thing God is doing with us, even when it comes to challenging subjects. Like, when is the rapture going to occur in its relationship to other end-time events? He's saying, come and study, and guess what? If you do it the way that I'm encouraging you to, you'll love me more. You'll get closer to me in the process. I'm challenging you. I'm pushing you. So do be diligent. Don't just take my word for it. Study it out for yourself. Net, don't be discouraged because God's purpose isn't to trick you. And then finally, above all, don't be distracted. Don't be distracted. You know, I fear that in this debate, people yelling at each other across the clamp, I got the right clues. No, I got the right clues. What they're missing is the whole point of it all in the first place. Did you notice what we've been learning across so many of these passages? What does Mark 13 say? Jesus says, hey, I'm coming suddenly. So you better not be sleeping. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5? Yeah, the rapture is going to happen. When? You don't know. It's going to come like a thief in the night, unexpectedly. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trouble, the hour of tribulation. Is he talking about the future great tribulation? Well, I'm not sure, but I know what he says in the next verse. Behold, I come quickly. 
That's what he said. That's what he wanted you to take. I am coming quickly. I'm coming suddenly. I'm coming imminently. I'm coming unexpectedly. So friend, above all else, know that. Believe that. Hold to that. Can I just make a simple statement? I care far less about how you view the clues about when the rapture is going to occur and how it's going to connect to all the other end time events, I care far less about that than the fact that every single one of you in this building believes that when you walk out here, Jesus is going to come unexpectedly to you. I care far more about that than I care exactly about how you read the clues about when that rapture is going to occur. I care far more about when you leave this building today. You're going to build your life this week around the fact that Jesus could come suddenly this week. That he could come imminently. Why? Because that's what he says. The pastor Alistair Begg, a man that I really appreciate for some of his biblical teaching, has a wonderful phrase. He says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Do you know what that so helpful is? We can get so distracted by our study. We should study. We should seek to understand. But we can get so distracted that we miss the main stuff and the plain stuff, which is this. Jesus is coming. He's coming suddenly. He's coming unexpectedly. And therefore, you're going to need to watch we have one sermon more, God willing, in this series. Next week, I want to look at simply this fact. What does it mean to watch for Jesus' return? But above all today, I hope you haven't been confused. I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's been helpful to push you forward in your study of God's word. And I hope that above everything, it is making you ready for a sudden 